Attention bar patrons, happy hour has begun. Drinks are our half price and it's time to loosen up from your work week. Show some love to your bartender, that lovable loudmouth with absolutely no filter, Trevor Garner. What do you know about this world and all its demands? Sometimes it's hard to face it. What are your future plans? Get off your throne. Get off your Trevor's happy hour. We're going to do some Dick Van Dyke. One month ago, he recorded this song with his wife. Now we're going to get into Laurel and Hardy. 714-798-9806. I hit the post. Fairy tales can come true It can happen to you If you're young at heart For it's hard you'll find To be narrow of mind If you're young at heart You can go to extremes With impossible schemes You can laugh when your dreams Fall apart at the scene And life gets more exciting with each passing day And love is either in your heart or on Our its way. way Don't you know that is worth Every treasure on earth To be young at heart For as rich as you are It's much better by far To, to be, be young, young at heart And if you should survive To a hundred and Look at all you derive out of being alive. And here's the best part, you'll have a head start if, if you are, are among the very, very young and hard. I'm running my own board. What do you think, Randy? Ah, sounds pretty good, actually. The only it. the only uh, way you can tell you can tell that uh, Dick Van Dyke is 92 years old is his uh, S's are a little more sibilant than they used to be. Yeah, a little a little more like Stan Laurel's, actually. Right there you go. Now he's dancing. He, that guy can dance. Here he goes. Oh, is is there a video of this? Yeah, it's uh, just go to YouTube. Uh, Dick Van Dyke and Arlie Van Dyke, young at heart. It is put it up. Ah, very good. Okay. All right. Let's finish this off, and then we'll get into uh, Laurel and Hardy. His wife sings pretty good. Yeah, Dick is singing pretty well, too, for 92 years old. 
That yeah. song goes back to 1953. That was a big hit for Frank Sinatra. And, in fact, there's a movie that he made with Doris Day, which it had another title originally, but when Young at Heart became a big hit song, they decided to retitle the movie Young at Heart. But, you know, he's singing, on, he's singing on the Sinatra mic. Oh, is that right, at Capitol yes. Records? Yes, he's at Capitol Records on the Sinatra mic. Yeah, Paul McCartney used that mic a couple of years ago, and he did an album of standards. He did an album of 1930s songs called Kisses on the Bottom, which is actually a line from a song called I'm Going to Sit Right Down and Write Myself a Letter. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, you know, I'd, I'd recorded at Capitol Studios many times before, but they'd never let me use the Sinatra mic before. And that was really uh, kind of daunting when he's, he's looking at this mic and it actually says Frank on it. <laughs> right. That's crazy. So they, they had stored it in a special place and it was, you know, it was marked as being Frank's mic. <laughs> well, this is Trevor's Happy Hour. Uh, we're, we're on live, trevorshappyhour.com. And anybody who's listening, which is, let me check the chat room. Well, I don't know. You guys can do your thing in the chat room. Um, oh, zombies listening. NR what? Some NRA guys in here. I get out of here. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. This is supposed to be a happy show. So we've got Randy Scret Vet, correct? Scret Vet. There you go. Yeah, ten points. Ten points. And uh, Randy is like a Laurel and Hardy uh, historian. And. I yeah, I'm, uh, well, I've been, uh, uh, you know, the, the most recent edition of my book, which was the first edition of it was published 30 years ago, and uh, uh, about about uh, 12 years ago, I said, you know, there's so much more stuff that's coming through on the internet, and so much more material that's so much more readily available. I got to sit down and rewrite this thing from the from the bottom up. So I spent several years doing that, and it finally came out in uh, June of 2016. So it's been out for about a year and a half now. The the new uh, updated edition, no, no, which no, is no, uh, but, okay. Well, what's the name of the book? Uh, the book is called Laurel and Hardy: The Magic Behind the Movies. That's right. And as as the title might indicate, it's it's a history of how they made every one of their 107 films together, from the initial idea through all the drafts of the scripts, through the filming and then the editing, and then the previews and recuts and uh, the whole nine yards with. Uh, I, I was very lucky to get to meet a lot of people. Uh, this is going back many years now. Uh, I've been a Laurel and Hardy nut since I was five years old, which would be which would be 1964. I was born in 1958. Okay. And uh, they, back in those days in Los Angeles uh, TV, they used to run Laurel and Hardy shorts uh, at seven o'clock in the morning and at five o'clock in the afternoon every day twice. And so uh, being that I would watch them both times every day, it didn't take too long before I was very well acquainted with a lot of their movies. And uh, so I, you know, just was fascinated by these films and uh, I had a, a kind of an in interesting experience when, when I was six years old. Yeah, but you're, this wait, in, wait, wait. Well, okay, you're, now you're six. Okay, well, you were five. Now I'm six. Now you're six. Now I'm okay, six. Okay, let's go, keep going. Now it's <laughs> February of 1965. And I'm getting ready to go to uh, first grade school, and uh, I'm in the kitchen getting ready for school, and I'm prattling on about Laurel and Hardy because I'm so obsessed with them. And I said to, to my uh, mom, I said, gee, I wonder if Laurel or Hardy are still alive, because I knew even then that these movies were, at that point, 30 years old. You know, I, I, I knew they weren't brand new films. I knew these were old movies. And as soon as I'd said that, I wonder if Laurel or Hardy are still alive, my dad brought in the L.A. Times, and there right on the front page it said, Stan Laurel, 74, film comedian, dies at home. And it was so spooky because I had just said 
gee, I wonder if Laurel or Hardy are still alive. And boom, there was my answer. Yeah, and, and, and well, but hold on a second. Before you go back, because I wasn't born until 66. I was born in 1966, okay? You're a youngster. Well, you missed out on Beatlemania. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. I'm an 80s kid. But I ah. but no, but we have a, a we have wow we had a similar guy that like helped me get into this. Uh, uh, what I wanted to say was back in 1964, there was okay. I've got I got news clippings that my dad left uh-huh. me when he when he passed away. About a, a, there was something called the Sons of the Desert that was started yeah. in 1963, and I go. What is it? And I just started digging through my boxes and stuff, and I found all this. My dad, I don't know if he was a member or not, What? but you are like a member, aren't you? Yeah, Sons of the Desert is a, a Laurel and Hardy Appreciation Society. I mean, it's more than just a fan club. I mean, fan clubs are basically you write in and they send you a, a bumper sticker and a button or something. But uh, Sons of the Desert, it actually started in 1965. And uh, it's it's still going strong, and uh, in fact, we're going to have our, I forget which uh, international convention it's going to be, like the 21st or 22nd, but that's going to be in Cincinnati this July. And there are chapters of it, or as we call them, tents, uh, all over the world. It's very active in England and the Netherlands and Italy, as well as all over the United States. And uh, the, each one of these uh, groups, they get together uh, maybe every uh, couple of months or sometimes even more frequently than that, and they run Laurel and Hardy films. And uh, those of us who were in the Los Angeles chapter, which is called the Way Out West Tent, we were very lucky That's right. uh, going back to the, uh, the late 60s and can, all through the 80s and into the early 90s because can, can I a lot of the you? people who worked with Laurel and Hardy went to the meetings every, every time. That's right. But can I read you a clipping from 1966 that, that's in this book that I found from my dad? Sure. Laurel and Hardy memories live on with Sons of the Desert. Okay. You know a guy named James V. Healton? Healton? No, I didn't know that name. Okay, well, I've got the clipping from 1966. I think mm-hmm. there's a there's a a Sears catalog uh, ad on the back. Okay, it says if you can appreciate two clam shuckers from Des Moines joining the French Foreign Legion because one of them gets jilted, then the Sons of the Desert wants you. <laughs> okay, <This> is... <laughs> they're they're describing the plot line of a Laurel and Hardy movie called The Flying Deuces. Yeah, there you go. So. So I'm reading this thing, and I go, okay, there are now five, oh, 50,000 members in 60 worldwide chapters known as Tents, which derived their mm-hmm. names from Laurel and Hardy film titles. The founding tent was named after Sons of the Desert, a 1934 spoof of uh, a fraternal society. Okay, go. And mm-hmm. I'll keep going on this thing if you want. But this is... What? This is, what? Yeah, what, what, what is the date on that article? Because like there, were, there weren't that many tents yet in 1966, but uh, uh, there's something like 300 of them now. Okay, well, I don't know. I, I think it's 1960s. I mean, well, maybe it's not 66, but it's close enough. Yeah, it's got to be later than that. It's got to be later than that because the <laughs> you know, uh, the you know, L.A. Uh, you... chapter, which started in 1967, is the third one. Right. So, But anyway, there there are lots and lots of members around the world, and we do have 
international conventions, and then um, in Europe they have European conventions on the off years when they're not having the international ones. So it's it's very active, and it's very active on the internet too. You can uh, type in Sons of the Desert in a search engine, and uh, you'll get all sorts of uh, websites from individual chapters of Sons of the Desert. Uh, but the way out west tent, as I was about to say, we were really lucky in the in I joined it in 1971 when I was 12. Uh, you were supposed to be 16 to join because they did usually have uh, you know drinking at the meetings and uh, uh, you were supposed to be of uh, almost adult age. But uh, thank goodness the secretary of the L.A. chapter, whose name is Lori Jones McCaffrey, she was very nice and she uh, she bent the rules and let me get in at 12 years old. And thank God she did because that way I was able to meet a lot of the people who worked with Laurel and Hardy who wouldn't be around a few more uh, more years later. So uh, I I joined in 1971, uh-huh. 12 years old, and uh, the first meeting I went to was at the it was at a Jewish war veterans hall in uh, North Hollywood somewhere, and uh, people who just had just come to the meeting just as members included Stan Laurel's second wife Ruth, uh, the it, uh, the the, uh, the man who wrote the theme song the Cuckoo Song, a man named Marvin Hatley was there and wow. playing the piano. He was playing hot jazz piano for us. And uh, also a little man named Joe Rock, who had been a producer of silent comedies for Stan Laurel before Stan Laurel teamed with Oliver Hardy. So I got to meet all three of those people hey. at my first meeting. You know, Randy, can I play? The, and hey, I thought, Randy, I, Randy, Randy, can I play? The, yeah. can I play the Cuckoo song? Sure. Okay, let's just like it's like let's, forty seconds. Let's do it. <laughs> This is being recorded for her posterity. Love it. Oh yeah, we got it. <laughs> yeah. Just, 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 just in, in in case you wanted to know, uh, those were played on uh, two clarinets by two guys named Vern Trimble and Art Stevenson. Okay. And uh, the reason I know that is because I got to be very, very close friends with Marvin Hatley, who was the man who wrote that tune. And if you want, I can tell you th- what the genesis of that song is and how that came to be. Uh, uh, this, this, was, is this, was, this is your show. This is your show. This is your show. I want you to tell us everything about Laurel and Hardy. Go. Oh, my God. We'll be here for for two months. Um <laughs> That's that's that, that's why I wrote it all down in a big 630-page book that weighs six pounds. You see. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> no, all that's of okay. It. Just like tell us what tell us the highlights, like like Cliff Notes. Well, I'll I'll tell you the the origin of the cuckoo song. Um, Marvin was a multi-talented instrumentalist. He was just one of these guys who could naturally pick up an instrument and play it. And he said he said I he said I don't know why he said I could just. It seemed like any instrument there was, I could just pick it up and pretty much play it, except the harp. That was the one thing I couldn't uh, master. But he uh, had a job. Uh, first, he w- was on radio on good old KFWB out here in L.A. Uh, this is back in 1927, thereabouts, when they had music and things like that on the radio. Uh, and then around 1929, he got a job at a radio station that was located, headquartered inside the Hal Roach Studios in Culver City. And Hal Roach, of course, is the producer who gave us Harold Lloyd and our gang, or the Little Rascals, and Charlie Chase, 
And later on, that's where Laurel and Hardy eventually became a team at the Hal Roach Studios. Well, they had a, a radio station headquartered there called KFVD. Strange call letters, but that's what they were. And Marvin uh, and uh, these two other guys, Vern Trimble and Art Stevenson, all of them could play any instrument under the sun. And they did a show in the morning from 7 to 9 called the Happy-Go-Lucky Trio. And it was a morning show, and uh, people would call in with requests, and they'd try to stump the band. They'd try to, to see if they could get some form of music that they couldn't play. And he said, no, no, we could, we could play polkas, we could play Mexican music, we, we could play you know, uh, any, any type of music that they wanted. And he said, and since it was a morning show, we would do, he said, I would do this musical time signal to remind people of what the time was. And so it was like a musical cuckoo clock. And so he said, the left hand just keeps going cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. And he said, the right hand is very dominant. It's like a bugle call. And he said, and that was, we'd play that every 10 minutes or so to remind people of the time because they were getting ready for work while they were listening to the show. So they had a restaurant at the Hal Roach Studios called the Our Gang Cafe. And Stan Laurel was having breakfast there one morning, and they had the radio show piped in over the PA system. And he heard this song, and talkies had, had come in recently, and he thought, well, we don't really have a theme song. That would be a great theme song for us. And so he went over to see Marvin at the radio station and said, you know, can we use this for, uh, for our, our theme song at the beginning of movies? And Marvin thought it was a good idea because even though he hadn't written it as the Laurel and Hardy theme, it fit perfectly because uh, he said there's, the, there's that cuckoo figure in the left hand just over and over and over again, which is little Stanley being cuckoo, and the right hand sounds like a, a bugle call, which sounds like Ollie, who's you know rather pompous and, right. and me first. And he said the reason it's funny is because it's being played really in two keys at once. The left hand is playing in the key of F, and the right hand is playing in the key of G. And the, the middle notes of those two chords clash when you have the the the, the, the second coup of the cuckoo. <laughs> so that's what makes it sound funny. But anyway, Marvin showed me how to play that, and he gave me a piece of original sheet music of that. And uh, he was a, a dear, dear man and still a great musician. And uh, I was very pleased in 1982 to actually produce a record album with him because I wanted to make sure that some of his music got preserved. So he was a great guy. And like I said, I got to meet him at my first Sons of the Desert meeting when I was 12 years old. And uh, continuing with Sons of the Desert, but again, every wait, time wait, I went to... wait, 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 wait. Okay, so the Sons of the Desert was yeah. in 1963. Okay. No, no, it started in '65. Well, started in '65. But, but, it, but I, it says in this article that Stan Laurel had to give permission for them to do this. Is that true? It was John McCabe. It was the idea of John McCabe, who was his biographer. John McCabe wrote a book called Mr. Laurel and Mr. Hardy. And the first edition of that came out in 1961. And uh, uh, there was a lot of response to it from Laurel and Hardy fans all right. over the world. And hey. because of that, John McCabe thought, gee, we should have some sort of way for all of these fans to to focus their energy and focus their love for Laurel and Hardy and do something constructive with I'm it. I'm holding that book. So, I'm, I'm holding that right. book in my hand. Right. Well, it's 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 not hard to get a hold of. It's been in print for <laughs> over 50 years. So okay. uh, uh, that's, uh, that's really the, the first ever book on Laurel and Hardy and the only one that was ever written with their uh, participation. Well, mine even is though it did okay, come out me, after Oliver Hardy had on, gone. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Okay, Randy, listen to this. Let me. Okay, what what is my date? How do I find the date in this book? What 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 year is my book? 
Mm-hmm. It'll either be 19, depending on the cover. Which what's what's on the uh, dust jacket? Uh, Laurel is holding a pickaxe, and like, no, they're both holding. Like, oh, it's the, oh, you've got you've got the little you've got the little yellow paperback version. What year is this? 1960s. That's that's a signet version. Okay, that is a a signet paperback of the 1966 hardcover edition. Wow, there's, you know there's everything. There's a 1961. There was a 1966 that came out with a second, with an added chapter at the end, and then the y- little yellow paperback, which is what you have. I give up. You you know everything. I don't. It's like I can just say anything. Hey, I've been studying this stuff since I was five years old. I'm 59 now, so I, if I don't know it, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> okay, well, keep going. It's like you know everything about my book and my article. Okay, oh, well, hey, I've got several copies of all of those different editions, crying out loud. Yeah, uh, So anyway, where was I? Uh, uh, anyway, the Sons of the Desert, uh, the L.A. chapter, the Way Out West chapter, they would routinely have all these great people showing up, but they weren't really doing uh, Q&As, you know? They they would just sort of have they'd introduce them and say, well, we have Joe Rock here, we have, uh, you know, different people, and they'd stand up and say hi. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, these people are the story. These were the people who made these films. And instead of watching uh, Hogwild again, which we all memorized long ago, why don't we have these people on stage and talking about making the films? Well, so because of that, I began taking a little uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder. They didn't have cassettes yet. <laughs> and be- started doing little impromptu interviews of these people. And uh, then when I finally turned 16 and got my driver's license, by then I was able to... Uh, to really, you know, do uh, actual uh, uh, interviews of these people in their homes, you know, uh, because now most of them lived in North Hollywood or Tarzana or Encino, that area, and I live in Buena Park, which is in Orange County, right near Knott's Berry Farm. So it was a bit of a drive because I'd have to go 35 or 40 miles each way on the L.A. freeways, but I was really determined to get these people uh, preserved, get their stories preserved, because I knew that, you know, at at their youngest, they were like 75 or, or 77 years old, and a lot of them were already in their early 90s. So I wanted to make sure I got them all preserved. And ultimately, uh, I did interview and get on tape about 65 people who worked with Laurel and Hardy in various capacities. And uh, I didn't really have it first. I didn't have the idea of doing a book. I just wanted to get these people preserved on tape. But as I kept acquiring more and more interviews, I kept thinking, well, there's so much stuff that they're telling me about Laurel and Hardy that's not in anything that's in print. Because right. um, there, there is the John McKay book that you have, which has a lot of nice quotes from Stan Laurel and has a, a rather brief interview with Oliver Hardy. But aside and, from that, well, it really and, doesn't and, go into the hey, production of the film. Hey, just so I can say something. With a foreword by Dick Van Dyke. That's the reason I started the show this way. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, Dick, Dick Van Dyke. In fact, what that is, is that is Dick Van Dyke's eulogy for Stan Laurel. That's, okay. that's, the, that's the speech he gave at Stan's funeral. Which, which by the way, is uh, we're almost going to be uh, commemorating the anniversary of that. Stan Laurel died on uh, February 23rd of 1965. So we're coming up on, uh, what is that going to be, the About 54th anniversary of that. Uh, anyway, uh, so I started doing these interviews with people, and, and as I realized more and more that there was all this wonderful material that they were giving me about the making of the films, I thought, well, you know, what else is out there? And then in 1980, the, uh, the L.A. chapter of the Way Out West tent, they had a convention, a big Hollywood 80 convention, and uh, they found, you know, everybody they could find who was still alive who had worked with Laurel and Hardy, and I got to make a whole bunch of new contacts that way. 
And there was a guy in the dealer's room, in the memorabilia dealer's room, who had scripts. And none of us even knew that there was such a thing as a Laurel and Hardy script. You know, we'd always heard these stories about, oh, yeah, you know, they worked off the cuff. They just had a basic idea, and that was it, blah, 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 blah. But all of a sudden, here comes this guy with original scripts, and, and uh, he was selling them for something like 35 bucks a piece, which was more than I could afford at that time. I was a starving college student. Yep. So I got together with a bunch of my other friends, and I said, look, I'll buy one, and each of you buy one, and we'll make copies for each other, and you know that way we can share the information. And then I talked to the guy, the dealer, who had these scripts, and I said, look, I'm doing a serious research project here, and whichever ones you don't sell, is there any way that I can you know, get the information? And he said, well, I don't want you to make photocopies, but I said, could I, could I dictate them into a tape recorder? He said, sure. He said, but my store is only open on Saturdays, and I'm on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. I said, all right. So <laughs> for about six or seven Saturdays after that, I would drive all the way from Buena Park to this guy's shop in, uh, on Sunset Boulevard, and I'd sit behind the shop on a couple of upended plastic milk crates, and as fast as I could, I'd read these scripts into my tape recorder, my little cassette recorder, trying to get all of it preserved as, I, as fast as I could before he closed up for the day. And I finally did get through all of them, and uh, every one of these scripts, uh, it's funny, Hal Roach, who was their producer, used to say, 50% of what is in the script will not play. In other words, uh, it, it, it sounds really funny when you read it on paper, but when you actually get on the set and you start to act it out, you realize it isn't anywhere near as funny as you thought it was going to be. And he said that was just standard operating procedure. We just assumed that 50% of what was in the script would not play. That's why we always had gag men on the set to suggest better bits of business than what we had in the script and what we wanted to replace. So I'm finding in these scripts all that Mr. Roach is exactly right. About half of what is in every script is not in the movie. And there's and a lot of it really is funny. In fact, sometimes it sounds like it's funnier stuff than what did wind up in the picture. So I thought, well, here's all these great scenes, uh, Laurel and Hardy comedy routines that aren't in the films. I got all these great interviews. Then uh, I, I found a second collection of scripts, which happily happened to be like all the other ones that, that the first guy didn't have. Uh, in fact, they were Stan Laurel's personal copies with his notations in the margins. And I thought, this is great. This is like reading his mind, you know, his comments on the individual uh, bits of business. And, of course, he'd helped write the script in the first place. So I found all of those. And then uh, there were other sources. USC had a whole bunch of uh, uh, studio files from the Hal Roach Studios, including all of the payroll ledgers, which they still have. Yep. Uh, it was just fantastic. So anyway, after hey, hey, many years of research, hey, no, I, I put no, it all together ask, as a hey, book. i got to ask you this one question. How much did they yeah. make? How much did they make for doing a a film? I mean, how much did Oliver Hardy make, and like Stan Laurel make? Money, well, money wise, it, it it grew pretty rapidly. And in the late twenties, they were making like uh, Stan was making like two hundred and fifty bucks a week, and Hardy was making like two hundred. Mm -hmm. But it grew very quickly as they became famous all over the world and popular all over the world. And yes. I, I would say their their peak earning years were probably around. 1934-35, and at that point, Stan Laurel was making 3,500 bucks a week, and Hardy was making 2,000 dollars a week. Wait a minute, and Laurel. Wait, Laurel got paid more than Hardy. 
He did because he spent probably twice as much time at the studio as Hardy did. That's what I. That's See, what, no, okay. I remember that because I, I I saw that like Laurel and Hardy. Laurel was more uh, interested in the uh, the business plan than he was. And, like Hardy was out like goofing around. Well, Stan was very interested in uh, working with the uh, the other gagmen to to make to put the scripts together. He was sort of like the head story editor, and he also worked very closely on editing the films. And in fact, uh, I have his notes on one of the films called The Flying Deuces. And you know, he he's he's concerned practically right to the frame on every shot. He was a very careful film editor, and his notes are like, uh, you know. Put put back in close up shot from 36B reel and uh, t- you know tighten this uh, shot. Omit this line and it, it's very specific. You know, so he was really really a, a very much a, a, the editor of the films as well That's as right. and, uh, and the key writer of the film. But didn't Stan Laurel want him to be away in the first place? He didn't. He doesn't want him around because he's like he's like uh, shaking up the the business. He he just like just go away and come back when I we have to do the, we have to do the job. Well, it was never a case of him saying to Babe, go away. I mean, but, num- no, number my... one, they, they, they always got along together very well. And, in fact, the nice thing about Laurel and Hardy is that their friendship got stronger and stronger over the years, whereas with most comedy teams, they start out as fast friends and they gradually drift apart. But with Laurel and Hardy, it was exactly the opposite. Uh, Hardy had been working in films since his early 20s. He'd, he'd been working in films since 1914, uh, he started out in Jacksonville, Florida, which at that point was a burgeoning movie capital because they had sunshine just as they did in Hollywood, California. And that's where he got his start making movies. He was usually uh, cast as the villain because he was a big man, and they usually had small guys as the comedians in these silent films. So he'd usually be the the bad guy. And they put a big uh, heavy eyebrows and a big heavy beard on him. And you know he he chased the little comedian. Tell me about so that no, was his no, but, but, stock okay, and Rand, trade Randy, in the early years. Randy, tell me about uh, Oliver Hardy's like youth, like when he was growing up, being fat and everything. Now I want to know about that. Well, he was born on January eighteenth, eighteen ninety two, in a little town called Harlem, Georgia. And Harlem, Georgia, now has the annual Oliver Hardy days in October. And they also have an Oliver Hardy or a Laurel and Hardy Museum, which you can find information about online. And uh, his uh, father, actually, Hardy's, uh, the, the man we know is Oliver Hardy. His actual name was Norval, N-O-R-V-E-L-L, Norval Hardy. That was his mother's maiden name, and they gave that to him as his first name. His father was Oliver Hardy. He was a Civil War veteran, and he was a manager of a hotel in a little town called Madison, Georgia. Unfortunately, Oliver Hardy, our Hardy's father, passed away when uh, little Norville was only 10 months old, so he never really knew his father. His mother's name was Emily. She already had four children from a previous marriage, and so now here she was. She'd been widowed twice now and had five kids uh, with uh, with baby uh, Norville, and uh, the the people who were who owned the hotel that she was managing, they said, well, we don't want a mother with five children running our hotel, and they basically kicked her out. So she said, all right, I'll start my own hotel, which she did mm-hmm. right near the train depot in Madison, Georgia, and it was called the Hardy House, and it was very successful for a number of years. And then later on, she moved the family to a town called Milledgeville, Georgia, where she ran this very big hotel, a big three-story hotel. And that's really where where Ollie grew up. He uh, or Norville grew up, 
he went to school about a block away, and he got his first job there at, at, nearby at a movie theater. And his first job was being the projectionist and the guy who basically did everything at the movie theater. And that's why when he was about, oh, 21 years old, he said, you know, I, I could be just as bad as the guys in these movies. And so he decided to go to Jacksonville, Florida, which wasn't all that terribly far away from his home in Georgia. And that's how he got into the movie business. So he was about 22 years old when he started making films and, uh, uh, you know, had, had, had already been in something like 125 movies before he ever uh, made anything with Stan Laurel or before Stan Laurel had ever made a movie. So Hardy had been an experienced movie actor before uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, teamed together. And, uh, you know, that's basically his, his background. He was also very much interested in singing, and there was a time when he was a professional singer in vaudeville. That's how he got to meet his first wife, whose name was Madeline. She was a piano player in vaudeville, and he was a singer. And uh, anyway, Hardy was uh, very active making uh, uh, pictures as a supporting player, first in, in Florida, and then, uh, then he was with a comedian named Billy West, who was an imitator of Charlie Chaplin. And uh, Hardy became the stock villain for Billy West, and then Billy West moved his company out to California, and that's how Hardy came but out was here. It, but wait, but was he worried about his weight at that time? Well, no, he wasn't really worried. He was, he'd always been heavy. In fact, I have, a, I have the only existing photograph there is of him as a child at about six years old, and he's already chubby. Um, and he just it wasn't any sort of glandular condition or anything like that. The whole family really was fairly big is you know their frame was big right but he he wasn't really um like worried he, like, about like, it in like, fact, wait, he, well, like, in fact like, he said this is my career you know they they hire me because i'm big yeah so well, he wasn't yeah, about to right, diet right, that right. away right he had that look like like you you're a viking i mean i understand that but <laughs> okay but i understand okay but but you are big and, and everybody has a role to play and you had to that's what they hired him for i get it go right so anyway, as I said, he, he came out to California with the, this Chaplin imitator named Billy West, and uh, then he worked at a studio called Vitagraph, which in fact the studio was still there. It, it later became KBC uh, Television Studios, it's, it, and then, of course, they've since moved from there, but it's, it's on uh, Talmadge and Prospect, and it's still a working studio, this studio that Oliver Hardy was working at in 1921. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was making comedies with a lot of different comedians there. And then he became a contract player at the Hal Roach Studios, which were in Culver City on Washington Boulevard. Uh, unfortunately, the studio is no, no longer there. It was demolished in 1963, but it was there starting in 1919. And uh, Hal Roach was a, a young man, an industrious guy. He'd been a, a truck driver. He'd been a cowboy. And uh, Hal Roach got into movies as an extra in westerns because he saw an ad in the newspaper saying, anybody who wants to be a, an extra in our cowboy movie will pay you $5 a day and give you a box lunch. And this was a lot more money than Hal Roach was making as a real cowboy. Right. <laughs> and so he, he just put on his Stetson hat and his spurs and his other Western gear, and he showed up at the movie studio, and they said, you look great. And uh, he got his 5 bucks, and in fact, they 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 moved him up to being an assistant director because... Uh, the director, they were doing a scene in a gambling hall. Well, Randy, and, uh, Randy, the, Randy. The director didn't know which way a roulette wheel was supposed to spin, and I gotta, Al Roach I gotta did you. know how that was supposed to spin, I gotta so they gave tell, him hey, extra Randy, money for that. Randy, i got to tell you something. i got this guy on my show. His name's Irving the Indian Boy, okay? Uh, and uh-huh. he, he comes in, he, like, he goes, hello, darling. And it's like, 
but he thinks he's a freaking cowboy. I mean, so that's what you're getting at, huh? And it's like you're not a you're like a a TV star cowboy, <laughs> right? Well, Hal, Hal Roach was uh, an adventurous guy. I mean, he'd uh, he'd worked in Alaska with uh, mule teams, and uh, he was a rough and tumble guy, you know. And and he was like that his whole life. He uh, was never afraid of any uh, challenge, and so that's why he was a good guy to be running well, a movie in, studio. In, in a way, like like just you and me having a conversation, like Claude Akins. I mean, what do you think about him? It's like I don't know. I mean, I've been watching a lot of him, and uh, but Cowboys moving on. I'm watching moving on a lot of it. Yes, yeah. and it's like I'm like going through the whole series, and yeah, I remember that when that was on the first run back in the seventies. Yeah, I'm watching it, and uh, but to get back to Laurel and Hardy and this cowboy stuff, you know, uh, go you it, it like you're smarter than I am. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know more about Laurel and Hardy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so go anyway, ahead. Hal Roach got into the movie business because he 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 was you know, acting as an extra in Westerns, and he, he could do it very convincingly because he really had been a cowboy. And he became friends with a, a young actor named Harold Lloyd, who was uh, up from San Diego and trying to get into movies. And he and another couple of guys, they all became extras together. They were working at Universal Studios, the same one that's still there today. They were working as extras in different movies. And uh, then Hal Roach came into an inheritance and he, he, he had 4000 bucks all of a sudden, and he said, I'm going to become a producer. Why should I be an extra for somebody else? I'll make my own movies. So uh, basically he bought a camera and some film, and uh, he and his friend Harold Lloyd began making some films together. They made five test films, and they sent them to a, a, a company called Pathé. Pathé liked them, and uh, Hal Roach became a producer. And by 1919, he had his own studio in Culver City. There's a man named Harry Culver who was basically giving land away because he, he knew that if there were movie studios built on there, they'd create a lot of tax money for, uh, for, for his, uh, his new city. So he basically gave them the land for the studio in anticipation of uh, all the tax revenue that they would generate. And uh, Roach had this wonderful studio, and he concentrated on making short comedy films because uh, in those days when you went to a movie theater, they didn't just show you a feature film. They would show you a cartoon and usually a newsreel. No television in those days. If you wanted to see the news, you had to see it on a newsreel in a movie theater and a short comedy. And Roach specialized in making these short comedies, and he, he started out making them with his friend Harold Lloyd, but then branched out with uh, a group of kids, which he called Our Gang. We know them better today as the Little Rascals. But he thought that kids were naturally funny. And uh, he said, you know, I don't want kids that are all uh, mannered and, uh, and uh, have been in show business. I want actual natural kids. So he would just, you know, actually get kids from the neighborhood to be in the films. Uh, and then he did hire other people to be supporting players, and Oliver Hardy was one of them. He became a, a contract player doing what he'd always done, which is being uh, sort of a, a, a villain, but also starting to do other parts and showing that he had a natural flair for comedy. Well, by 1926, another guy came to the Hal Roach Studios, and that was Stan Laurel. And Stan Laurel's background is he came from a, a theatrical family in England. His father uh, managed several theaters in the north of England and was also a, a comedian and a playwright. And young Stan was entranced by the theater from childhood. And by the time he was 16, he'd worked up his own act. I guess you wouldn't call it stand-up comedy, but it was it was telling jokes and singing funny songs and that sort of thing. And he had sort of a funny uh, costume and makeup on. 
So he was doing this from the age of 16. He was in uh, performing in uh, British music halls and eventually came out to American vaudeville. Uh, Stan was part of a troupe called the Fred Carno Comedians, K-A-R-N-O, and there was another guy in that troupe named Charlie Chaplin. And Stan Laurel and Charlie Chaplin were roommates, and they appeared together in several sketches. The, the Fred Carno troupe was kind of like Monty Python. They had a, a bunch of different comedy sketches that were wild, crazy humor. And they went over very well in England, and they decided, well, let's try and see how well we go over in America. So they came to America in 1910, and they were very successful, and they came over again in 1912. And this time they were so successful that a, a movie producer named Max Sennett saw Charlie Chaplin with the Fred Carno comedians, and he hired him away to make movies. And uh, after that, the Carno troupe kind of disbanded, so Stan stayed in America and worked in American vaudeville as a comedian, doing a succession of different acts, and uh, was trying to get into movies. He started making movies in 1917. He actually made a few movies for Hal Roach in 1918, and uh, you know, occasionally would make a film and then go back on the road in vaudeville. In case you don't know what vaudeville is, it's a big variety show. It's like the Ed Sullivan show. I know. And it would be look, 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 a, a whole bunch of different acts, each one about 10 minutes long, hey. and it could be anything. It could be okay. ventriloquists or magicians or jugglers I or singers or whatever. Is. I know what it is. Jack Benny's birthday was like two days ago, right? But okay, it was, I yeah. get that. Okay, but Zombie Wolf wants to say hi, and I've got people at Flocka. I got people in my chat room wanting to say hi to you, and this is a great show because you're giving like Larry Fine just show. He just signed in. I mean, this is crazy. They just signed into the chat room. Larry Fine. Larry Fine. <laughs> he signed into. The well, wouldn't be wouldn't be Larry Fine <laughs> of the Three Stooges. He's 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 been gone since 1975. I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, go ahead. Keep going. I, I did get to, I did get to meet that Larry Fine though. He was a very nice man. Okay. Well, keep going. Larry Fine. Is a is a. All right. So I have so, a, I have so a, I have about Stan, Stan Laurel's background. Go, go go go. So 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 Stan Laurel was in vaudeville and uh, working in pictures and in fact he and Oliver Hardy crossed paths at one point uh, in uh, early 1921. Uh, that Stan Laurel uh, had befriended a guy named uh, Bronco Billy Anderson who was one of the first cowboy stars in movies, and he was now trying to produce pictures with other people. And he thought Stan was funny, so they made this pilot film, just like they make pilot shows for TV shows today. They made pi pilot films in those days for uh, projected film series. And they made a film called The Lucky Dog, and Stan was the star comedian, and they needed a guy to play a, a, villip, a villain, a hold-up man. And who do they get but Oliver Hardy? And uh, so they, this film still survives, and they have a couple of lengthy scenes together. And when you see them, this first time they've ever met together, you can see that they have this rapport, that they, that they work well together, that they can anticipate each other's reactions. You know, when Stan does something, Hardy reacts really well, and Stan reacts to that reaction. And, uh, you know, it's the first time they ever worked together. Now, they didn't work together again until five years later when they both met up again at the Hal Roach Studios. But it's really interesting to see this one sort of accidental meeting of Laurel and Hardy, the lucky dog. Anyway, Stan continued making films for different people. Uh, a, a producer named Joe Rock, they, he made a whole bunch of films for him in 1924 and 25. And finally, he came again to the Hal Roach Studios in 1926, by which time Hardy, uh, as I said, was already a contract player. Stan had dis discovered that he really preferred writing and directing to acting, and he really wanted to work behind the scenes uh, on the pictures rather than being a comedian anymore. 
but uh, there was there was a point where uh, Hardy was making a film that Stan was directing, and uh, Hardy, uh, unfortunately, over the weekend uh, had decided to to cook a leg of lamb, and he burned his arm very severely, and couldn't work. And while this was healing up, and so Hal Roach said to Stan, "Well, you take Hardy's part," and so they they sort of rewrote it to fit Stan. And Stan stepped in and did the part that Hardy was supposed to play. And then, and in fact, I even have in my book, I've got an article about this from the Los Angeles Times from 1926. I know, I know the actual date when this happened. Uh, and, and so uh, Hardy, before too long, hey, can was, I, can was I well say, again. Can I say something at some point? Sure. It's your show. Step in. Okay. My dad's book. Okay. I wanted to talk to you for a long time. And he has this, like, there's, like, tape on it. It says, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy made 105 movies together. Laurel made 76 without Hardy. Hardy made 213 without Laurel. Okay, so then it says, Big Ollie had a button nose, spit curl, bangs, toothbrush, mustache, white gloves, and uh, genteel manner, and a slow, uh, what? A slow burn, or oh, whatever. Skinny Stan that, had... That would, that would be his look of disgust into the camera, would be a slow burn. Yeah, okay. So Skinny Stan had a triangular chin, unbrushable hair, and puzzled expression, and a, a double take. It's it's funny. It, it hurt. It's so funny it hurt. And that's funny. It's like a zombie. That, that's it. It's like I'm looking at this book, and I'm like going, wow, my dad has all this stuff. He He was infatuated by these guys. Yeah, well, a lot, a lot of us are. I guess I guess I have been because I've got 43 years worth of research in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Keep going. Keep telling us something. All right, well, everybody's love Everybody's loving it. Larry Fine likes ah, it. Ah, okay. Well, Larry. anyway, Laurel and Hardy were picking it up now. They're both at the Hal Roach Studios. And uh, uh, Stan is sort of inveigled to to go back in front of the cameras again, even though he really would have preferred to be, just be a writer and director. Uh, and now that Hardy is back again, they started doing films together. They they made one film in 1926 called Duck Soup, not to be confused with the Marx Brothers movie of the same name. That was that was just a, a, an expression that was in common usage in those days, meaning something would be very easy. Oh, that's just that'll that's just duck soup. It's very easy. Right. And uh, they play a couple of hobos together, and they're really teamed together in the film. And you know they act a lot like the mature Laurel and Hardy that we know and love. But then for some reason, over the next, oh, 15 films or so, sometimes Hardy just has a bit part. Sometimes they have very little footage together. But gradually, you can see them coming together and developing their characteristics, which is really interesting because every other comedy team that ever came to movies came to movies from some other medium. They came to movies from vaudeville or from Broadway or from radio and by the time that these other teams came to movies, they were already fully formed and had their characteristics and had their routines. You know, the Marx Brothers had been working in vaudeville for 20 years before they made a movie. Abbott and Costello had been working in burlesque and on radio okay. since hey, 1936. Uh, no, no, I, I need to chime in here. Okay, Kimberly, last night on my on my show, she, you know what she said? I said, what's your favorite Laurel and Hardy film? Jack and the Beanstalk. I go... Uh, that's that's Abbott and Costello. I know, but they, they they get them mixed up, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> we have to we have to work on that so that Laurel and Hardy become household names again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead, keep going. 
Well, anyway, Laurel and Hardy are the one team where you can actually see the team forming on film. And uh, in fact, I've I've done that several times, watched all of their films in the order in which they were made, uh, because it's it just it's fascinating to see uh, all, all the little touches gradually coming in one at a time. And by by 1927, when Laurel and Hardy had made, oh, I suppose maybe 18 or 19 films, um, they were fully formed. And there was a guy on the lot named Leo McCary. Leo McCary was the supervising director of the Hal Roach Studios, which means he basically just oversaw all of the product and would work on the stories for everything that Roach was making. He had Roach had about three or four different series going on at the same time. He had uh, uh, Charlie Chase, uh, Our Gang, uh, a guy named Max Davidson, and he had something called the All Stars. And Laurel and Hardy at that point were part of the All Stars. And Leo McCary went to Roach's office and he said, "Boss, why don't we make a, a series?" With Stan and Babe, Babe was Hardy's nickname, and he said, "You know, he says every time we make a picture with them together, they, you know, they have this this way of uh, they they have this rapport, they have this way of acting well together." And so Roach gave his approval, and they decided to actually make a dedicated series with Laurel and Hardy, and I actually have reprinted in my book. Uh, a, a, a what they called a press sheet. They would give this out to movie theaters and to newspapers to promote the movies. It's for a film called The Second Hundred Years, in which Laurel and Hardy play convicts. And it says, new starring team uncork riotous performance in first picture as comedy duo. You know, it's, it's, it's proclaiming this the new Hal Roach comedy team. And in fact, in a couple of places, they call them Hardy and Laurel. <laughs> they right. hadn't quite decided on the billing just yet. So by 1927, they were off and running, and uh, very quickly they became very, very popular, not only in, in the United States, but all over the world, because they were working in silent movies. And obviously, all you had to do uh, uh, for the rest of the world was just change the language of the titles. You know, they, they would have titles where people were speaking, and they they just changed those out into the language of whatever country it was, and there you go. Their, Laurel and Hardy's humor was universal. It worked all over the world. And uh, so they, they were very, very popular and uh, made silent pictures for about two and a half years. And then sound came in in 1929. And I can tell you some interesting stories about how they adapted to that, too, if you're interested. <laughs> no, I'm not interested. They're, they're, these people in the chat room. Okay, l- let me just like read you a few things because I want to hear you talk. And the, All right. The, Larry Fine said, Trevor, this is good stuff. Uh, this what what you're talking about is great. This is what I wanted to do, and and then some guy. This is just some guy trying to sell his book. I said I don't believe that. No, that's not it. I I mean we 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 live and die on nostalgia, right? Oh yeah, that's not you know. I know uh, other things besides Laurel and Hardy. I've written the uh, the yeah. booklet notes for about thirty CDs of. Uh, uh, dance bands and personalities of the 1920s and 30s. I love the music of that period. And in fact, for 35 years, uh, I've, I've done a show every Sunday afternoon for the Pomona College Station, KSPC, called Forward into the Past. And I, I have a, I have 35,000 records uh, of, of uh, music from that period. I have a barn in my backyard of uh, filled with 78s, <laughs> which I use for my radio show. I saw that. I saw that picture of you. And yeah. It's like, but, but you really like it's like I did my nostalgia business for twenty years, but here's the thing, like Jack Benny, I've got like so many autographed Jack Benny photos, and and uh, you know you know Steve Stolyer? Yeah, sure, of course. Raised eyebrows. 
I, I want to get him on, too. I mean, but, yeah, yeah, like Groucho Marx. I mean, we can talk about anything. There's so much great stuff to talk about. And people go, that's boring, boring. And why, why do people feel that way? What do you think? I don't know. I, I, I taught film history for five years at the Long Beach School for Adults. And I really had to, uh, you know, these were kids who were like high school age kids. And uh, I had to really work to get them to understand that black and white is not radioactive. <laughs> you know, that black and white movies will not cause your skin to fall off. You know, that, right. uh, in fact, black and white, uh, black and white is beautiful. Uh, you can do all sorts of great things in black and white photography that you cannot do in color photography. And uh, I mean, especially if you look at uh, like some of the film noir movies, some of the, the crime drama movies that were made in the late 40s with a cinematographer named John Alton. I mean, every shot looks like an Ansel Adams photograph. It's so beautiful. Uh, and you know, he worked primarily in black and white. He did some great stuff in color, too. But the black and white is breathtaking. And I said, you know, it, it, that's, that's, that, should, that alone should not turn you off from a film, the fact that it's in black and white. And you know, gradually, I got these kids to to appreciate uh, the older films, wait, even you just silent said, wait, films. You just said you, but kids. but you know what? But once once they're exposed to it, they get into it, and they and they they really like it. And kids, you know, young kids, grade school kids, uh, take to Laurel and Hardy immediately. I mean, even now, I've I've been to many recent screenings of Laurel and Hardy films where there's a lot of kids, and it's so heartwarming. To, to not only hear the adults laugh, but to hear this whole chorus of, ah, you know, these high-pitched laughs, right. you know, just screaming with laughter at these films that were made 90 years ago. So uh, they, but, can, they can still, Laurel and Hardy can if, still if, capture if, if, a young if, audience. But you know what, Randy, if we're not here, nobody can expose them to this. Like, when we go, what are we going to do? We can't expose them anymore. But we have to well, that, that's it. No, no, that, I, I, I wrote my book to preserve the history and to preserve the memories of these great people who had worked with Laurel and Hardy. I, I never got to meet Laurel or Hardy personally, but I got to know Oliver Hardy's widow very well. I knew her for 15 years, and I've got 30 hours of interview tape with her. And you know, I tried to find everybody I could who was still around who had worked with them, and I wanted to preserve their memories. That was the main reason I wrote this book, was these, these people were so great and so talented in their own right and they all loved working with Laurel and Hardy. There wasn't a single person who said, ah, you know, those guys, they were bums, and I didn't like working with them. Everybody talked about what, what a congenial uh, uh, feeling they had walking onto the Laurel and Hardy set. There was a guy named Roy Seawright who was, he was a prop man, and he later did all the visual special effects, the optical effects at Hal Roach Studios. And he said, it could be cold or raining or blustery outside, he said you'd walk into the Laurel and Hardy set and it was warm. And he said it wasn't necessarily a thing of temperature, it was a human element. You just you were grateful to be there. And he said, you know, Stan would would do something every morning to get everybody laughing and make everybody happy. He said his his idea was this these were comedy films, people should be in a happy and relaxed frame of mind because that's how they're going to contribute ideas for the film, which they always needed while they were working. And he said um uh, when Leo McCary was there, Leo would pull over a piano and they'd sing and uh, in between takes. And it was a very relaxed, happy atmosphere. And he said, you, you were grateful to be part of the Laurel and Hardy uh, experience. And I heard that sort of thing again and again and again. So 
you know that that love for Laurel and Hardy, not just as characters in the movies, which we all have love for them, but the people who worked with them loved Laurel and Hardy as people and as coworkers. I know, and, uh, and I thought that was important to preserve. Can I, hey, can I? Oh, well, let's keep going. All right, so like I used to go to uh, Straw Hat Pizza. Remember they had those sixteen millimeter reels and like played like at the pizza place, and uh, like Laurel oh, yeah. and Hardy. Hey, uh, were you were like uh, involved in any of that? Well, I never worked at a Straw Hat Pizza Parlor, but we used to have one of those in Anaheim on Lincoln Avenue, and occasionally my parents would go to a store that was right nearby, so I would always go over there and poke my head in and see what they were running. It always seemed like they were always running the Laurel and Hardy murder case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> said, Don't they have prints of anything else? They should have more than one movie, for crying out loud. Uh, but yeah, they were always they had a you know a Bell and Howell Filmo Sound 16 millimeter projector just like we had in my it, elementary school. They would run it right, and like, they'd like be running all, a 16 yeah. mm print from Blackhawk Films in Davenport, Iowa, of uh, Laurel and Hardy murder case over and over and over again. And uh, yeah, there were there were lots of venues when I was a kid to see Laurel and Hardy. Um, there, there in Anaheim, there used to be a little th- place called the Old Movie Theater and Motion Picture Hall of Fame. It was right across the street from Disneyland. And it ran for about five years. Uh, it was on Harbor Boulevard in, in Anaheim. And, again, just 16-millimeter prints. But it was a guy who loved old films and wanted to be able to you know, get young people to see them. And so it was like maybe $2 to get in. It was really cheap. And he was open every weekend. And I, I wasted a lot of my youth at that place, but I got a great filmic education because I got to see all these terrific – uh, comedies and feature films and and cartoons and things, most of them from the 30s and 40s that I wouldn't have been able to see on television. You know, uh, you know. So, hey, hey, wait, wait, it, let, let me take over this 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 conversation here. I got this guy in here named Donkey Breath. Okay, he goes up to 94. This show is sucks. Jim Neighbors or something. And then another guy like Ballsacks comes in and says, "Boring, boring, boring." This is look. look listen to me. I'll tell you something, Randy. People think that old time stuff is boring. It's not. It's, it's fun for me. This is what I like. Why? Why? Do oh people, yeah. Why do people? I, like... I don't understand what the what the fascination is with forensic shows. Why is every drama on television today? Everything is somebody doing an autopsy and showing how somebody died. I mean, everything is just. Wait grim. a minute. Wait a minute. It, no, no. They're saying that you're self promoting yourself. It's self promotion. I'm, well, I'm, 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 no, I'm promoting Laurel and Hardy. Thank you. It, you're it, not promoting. It, it so happens you. that I wrote a book and and you're, spent forty three years uh, uh, like doing the research, but I did it for them, not for me. Thank you. You're, these people are idiots in in this chat room. Ah, well, that's too bad. Wow. Well, well they 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 need they need to broaden their horizons <laughs> and and. Uh, you you have to realize that you don't know why you are where you are now until you know where you've been. And you get that experience by delving into the past and seeing what came before you. You know, I mean, <laughs> almost 100% of world history happened before we arrived here, you know? I know. Uh, there's an awful lot to catch up on. And uh, I personally, I've always thought that uh, the songwriting, particularly of the 1920s and 30s, was so far above what passes for popular music today. Hey, can I? Mean, I the, can, will you do me the, the a, wit wait. and the and the uh, the ability to create characters and a storyline? No, but will you give, lyric, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you like pick a song that I could play right now and like take a little? Uh, I gotta take a leak, but pick a song. What do you want to play? 
Pick a song. Uh, do you have Blues in the Night? Blues in the Night, the uh, old Harold Arlen, Johnny Mercer song? Uh, I mean, you know, did some, somebody up there did it. Cab Calloway did a great version of it. No, no. What's, Just what's, Google what's, Cab Calloway Blues in the Night. It'll no, come but, up. Okay, okay. What, what is your favorite? My your... mama done told me when I was in knee pants. My mama no, but done what's told your favorite me one? What's your favorite one? What's my favorite one? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I have 35,000 records. <laughs> I've, I've been doing a radio show for 35 years. Uh, I don't know. My favorite type of music is uh, uh, the late 1920s. Uh, I, uh, I like bands like Ted Weems, uh, George Olson and his music, O-L-S-E-N, uh, wearing well, Pennsylvanians well, before they became how about, a choral okay, group. How about, how about doing Peggy Lee and Benny Goodman? All right. That would be from about 1942. We or, like that. Or Ella Fitzgerald. We like we like Peggy Lee and Benny Goodman doing Why Don't You Do Right. That's a or good you, one. Are you on Cab Calloway? Uh, we like Cab Calloway. Right, sure, right. we love Cab. I was do, uh, honored do. to get to see him in 1991 at the Long Beach Terrace Theater. All right, hang on. I got. I got to take a break. I'll come back. I'll come be right back. Is the audio too low? No, it's fine. Okay. My mama done told me. When I was in knee pants, my mama done told me, son, why did she tell you? A woman of sweet talk, yes. I'll give you the glad eye. Uh-huh. But when that sweet talk is done, keep on a talking. A woman's a two face, a worry something that'll leave you to sing the blues, the blues. in the night. Now the rains are falling here, the trees are calling. My mama done told me, hear that lonesome whistle blowing across the trussle. My mama done told me, hear the hooey, the hooey. I'm clicking and clacking and echoing back the blues. In the night, the evening breeze will start. The trees are crying, and the moon will lose its light. When you get the blues in the night, take my word, the mockingbird. Saddest kind of song. He knows things are wrong, and he's right. From Natchez to Mobile. From Memphis to St. Joe, wherever the four winds blow. They go everywhere. I done been in some big towns. Yeah. Done heard me some big talk. Uh-huh. But there is one thing I know. A woman's a two-face. A worrisome thing that'll leave you to sing the blues. 
blue in the night. That's right, boys. My mama was right, the blues in the night. You know, Randy. If, All right. Randy, if we make one person happy, isn't that, that's what our life's about. Oh, yeah. You made me happy by letting me hear Cab Calloway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He was a star for 60 years. In fact, I got to see him, as I, as I mentioned, he played the Long Beach, Long Beach Terrace Theater in 1991. And he had with him on the bill a couple of great dancers called the Nicholas Brothers. And you oh. might have seen them in a oh, movie so called The Pirate. With I Gene know Kelly the Nick. Don't Judy worry. Garland. I know the I, – look, look my, one of my friends is Valerie Stewart, okay, and like Nick Stewart's daughter. And, and oh, she, yeah. She I interviewed calls, Nick Stewart many years ago. She, call, she calls into my show all the time and – she sends me messages, and I can get her on the phone now if you want. But it's just uh, like she goes, people like in the movie business aren't as as rich as you think they were. I mean, like back mm-hmm. in that day, right? Oh well, they, yeah. Well, they they were they were well compensated, but they're not certainly not on the level of what uh, movie stars are making today. No, no, they they die you know. they die broke. Well, it, <laughs> it's it's not what you make; it's what you keep. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, Michael Jackson was broke when he died, you know, and uh, uh, that's that's what happens when you walk into an antique store where everything costs a million dollars, and you go, <laughs> "I'll take that, 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 that," and in, it, literally in five minutes you've spent forty million dollars. Did so, and I got uh, my you my know. no my sponsor like Carl from the Nickel Shop. I asked him if he would like uh, put me on his uh, trust fund, and and he says. He started laughing. He goes, no, I'll spend it up before you get anything. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's like, well, you have to think about that. It, that's, that's really it. It's, it's like, spend up your own money. You made it. Like, have fun with it. My dad, I, I could never figure out why my dad made all this money and then just said, oh, I don't care about money anymore. Mm. And uh, it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, did he spend it or did he save it? He was he was afraid. He was afraid of not having enough money. Well, that happens with people. Sometimes they live so long that they outlive their money. No, he got cancer. So, he got cancer at sixty-seven. Well, it, it, in, in any event, I mean that's the problem. We ne- we we never know how long we're going to be around, and so we have to try to make sure that we got uh, something for the declining years when we're not able to work anymore. But uh, anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Not really. Uh, no, no, not really. Because I'll tell you why oh. we're not getting off topic. Because it's like we're talking about like actors and actresses that yeah. that died early and like they made a lot of money. I mean, tell me about because you know this. You know about these people that have like they accumulated something and then they like they lived in squalor at the end of their life. Happily, that was not the case with Laurel and Hardy. I'm happy to tell you. A lot of people think so, but it did not happen. No, but, but tell me. But, but, but tell me about like okay. <clears throat> let's talk about Song of the South. Okay, James now, Besquet. Huh? The kid. James Besquet is the actor who plays Uncle Remus. No, the little kid. Oh, Bobby Driscoll. Yeah, he died. At, like, well, he... I mean, Bobby Driscoll was, you know, I mean, he uh, sadly didn't live to be an old man because he got involved in drug abuse. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he, he suffered the fate of a lot of kid actors, which is they get hired a lot when they're cute. And then, unfortunately, at one point they turn 14 and nobody wants to hire them anymore because they become gangly uh, teenagers. And teenagers weren't cool until the 1960s, you know. 
Um, Bobby Driscoll did get hired to be the voice of Peter Pan, the animated uh, Disney film Peter Pan. But, you know, after not that many years after Song of the South, he was unemployable. And when you've grown up as a little kid and you have all this attention and you have people writing you fan letters and, you know, you're sent to the studio in a limo and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden it's gone, it's very hard for a lot of kids to psychologically deal with that. Um, That's why Paul Peterson, who was a, a kid actor on the Donna Reed show on television, he has a society basically for... Um, you know, kid, former kid actors trying to help them uh, That's, uh, no, but, okay. gain a foothold in the business. It. I know and, about you know, that. Uh, I know about it. Okay, like I, yeah. talk, I talk to like uh, you know <laughs> Spencer Livingston and like uh, Stanley Livingston. I, look, I know. All oh, right, guys. my three sons. Yeah, yeah, and who was the one who just passed away of cancer? He was like uh, Robbie. Oh, Don Grady. Yeah, Don Grady passed away, and and I talked to him too. And I, I think about all this stuff. It's, it's like I've had them on my shows, but the the point is, look, we're all gonna die sometime. Now, look, I could die right now on the microphone. Is that true? Well, <laughs> try not to do that. But it has been it has happened a few look, times. Look, look, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, what a tiny Tim! He died on stage. How many people died on That's, stage? Oh yeah. Happened, hey. happened with Dick Sean, too. Dick yeah, Sean Dick. died at intermission on stage. Yeah, on stage. Dick Sean, and we're talking about, like, uh, Jack Tripper, uh, John Ritter. He died He died, He died. died working. It's like, yeah, what Red, are we Red gonna... Fox. Uh-huh. Red, Red Fox, Fox was in died the, on stage? Red Fox is between takes on his show. Dude, I want to fucking die just like, just like doing this. <laughs> and I go... Well, just just make, make 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 sure you make sure you can still pay the rent uh, up until the point when it happens. <laughs> and everybody hates you. Goes, I hate they like throw like watermelons at you and stuff. Oh, I'm not talking about Gallagher, but you know what I mean. It's like it's like yeah, everybody is like mad at you. They go, I hate this show. It sucks. No, oh, they're at they're mad at me. No, they're mad well, at listen, they're got, mad at the whole I, show. I, I got about another ten minutes I can give you because I've got a, a bunch of stuff I got to get done yeah, before go, tomorrow. Go, go. So uh, no, I got no, about another can, ten minutes I can give you. You can give me ten more so minutes. What, what then, do you what do you need to know? No, you've already given it to me. It's I, I'm, ah, happy, okay. I'm I'm happy, but right where I'm at. Let's just say, okay. let's just say, hey, I'm glad that Ben Lamont brought you and me together. Like he was ah. like he was really like in, intrigued by you. I don't know what happened, but back in the day, he goes, "There's this guy, Randy Scred Scredvet," and he goes, "He goes, I love this. This guy is like Sons of the Desert and everything." And so that's how I know you, and that's how I connected. So let's okay. Let's, let's... Well, I yeah, I, I I ran for about oh from about 1974 until about uh, ten years ago. I ran a, an Orange County uh, chapter of Sons of the Desert, the group we were talking about earlier, and Ben was a member of it. And uh, you know, then he's 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 still in the L.A. area. I don't have a number for him or anything, but I still see him at different film events. I've seen him at a couple of screenings at UCLA, and I saw the last time I saw him was this past Labor Day weekend. There's a big event that happens called the Cinecon, C-I-N-E-C-O-N, mm-hmm. and it's a big five-day festival over Labor Day weekend of vintage movies. And these are movies that you can't see on TV and you can't get on home video. Uh, there are some silent films. There's a lot of films in the 1930s and early 40s, and they show fabulous stuff that's you know it's been locked away in the vaults for all these years. 
And uh, so I, I try to make an effort to get to that every year. And uh, Ben Lamont shows up at those two, so we get to get to renew our acquaintance. And so he's, uh, he's still around. He's still he's still alive. But uh, like, here's what I want to say: I'm drunk, I'm happy, and uh, whether you like it or not, this is the show. It's this. I I decided what I want to do is talk to people, and we did a great show right now. All right. Well, and, I and did, wait, I wait, did wait, my best. wait. I'm going to tell you one more thing. That night, that the silent movie theater, that uh, he was killed. What was his name? Yeah, Lawrence Austin. Yeah. When he was killed, I was there that night. Oh, were you? Oh my. Yeah. And well, I wasn't I, there that night, but I had been to some other screenings, and uh, Lawrence was a colorful guy. <laughs> he, he he. Before he took over the silent movie theater, he uh, used to do screenings at a Mormon temple in North Hollywood. And uh, I used to go there, and I would see Buster Keaton's widow because she would come to all of these things too. And so he was putting on a lot of screens before he took over the Salem Movie Theater. That little building on Fairfax, the Salem Movie Theater, has had yep. so much drama that there is, in fact, a documentary film about it. Uh, because you know, since it started, which was like in 1942, there have been several different uh, changes of ownership. And as you know, just this past year, uh, the, the 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 group that was running it now called the Cine Family. Uh, came under fire because uh, one of the guys in there was uh, uh, acting inappropriately. You know, there's all these, uh, all this, this whole firestorm of uh, people uh, sexually inappropriately acting toward other employees. Well, it affected the silent movie theater too. So now that is now uh, under wraps again, also. Right. Well, and, what, but uh, what, we, but we don't what, know what's going to happen to it. But what happened to that that guy that like shot him? Yeah. No, no. I'm asking you. What do you know? What happened? Oh, yeah, I do. To the, to the guy who shot, I mean, is it over? I mean, it's got to be over by now. What happened? Well, um, Lawrence had a boyfriend, and the boyfriend was in cahoots with the guy who shot Lawrence because they thought that Lawrence had a lot of money and insurance or something, and the boyfriend would get it. So uh, Lawrence, Lawrence had the wrong guy for a boyfriend, and uh, he and the guy who actually did the shooting are now in prison. So uh, that's uh, it was it was it was a plot to uh, to, to 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 gain uh, insurance was, money from Lawrence State. I'm telling you, I was there at that ticket taking place that night. I, I was there wow. with my friend Brenda. Brenda and I were there that night. We got out. We were like driving down the freeway on the. Yeah. We were driving down the sixty, and we heard uh, there's been a shooting at the uh, silent movie theater. And I go, what the fuck? Yeah. And we were driving yeah. down. We were coming back to Orange County. It was crazy. Yeah, I heard it on the radio too. I was coming home from. Uh, I used to do a, a help with a thing uh, at, the, at the Long Beach School for Adults every Friday night. We did it for 17 years. We'd have a, a screening every Friday night of a vintage movie, and I would put together the short subject program that uh, accompanied the feature, and I would write the program notes. And so, you know, I helped every. I was there usually every Friday night. I'm driving home at about 10:30, and. On KNX, yeah, they announced that there had been a murder at yep, the that uh, was silent that, movie we, theater. We had it on. We had it on. Yeah, That's crazy. yeah, it was really scary, you know, because I, I, yeah, I had known Lawrence Austin well, I mean, but I certainly imagine, had seen him in old movie circles for a long time. There, I was actually there. We were taken off like thirty minutes before the murder. Wow. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a a sad fate for that little theater. It kind of keeps bouncing back though, so I'm hoping that eventually it'll have another. Another owner, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know they'll, they'll continue play. to run silent movies, I'm and it'll play, have a happy you know resurgence again. Hey, Randy, I'm going to play like uh, Donald Fagan the night. Uh, uh, you like Donald Fagan? 
Yeah, I like Steely Dan. Okay, I'm going to play New Frontier for Zombie, and we're going to like let you go. I mean, thank all you right. For, thank you for talking about Laurel and Hardy. Let's keep keep being friends, all right? We don't have much all right, time. Sir. We don't have time on this earth. We have to like keep talking. That's right. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye.